it's wonderful to be with you all this evening. Our theme tonight is conscious and authentic relationships. What you could call spiritual relationships, but spiritual without a religious connotation. So we're not talking about what do our scriptures say about how you should have a relationship, but rather how can we in whatever our religion may be, whatever our culture may be, how can we have relationships that are taking us closer to where we want to go rather than farther? And the reason that this comes up so frequently is if you say to most people, what is the greatest cause of stress in your life? What most people will give you is an answer that's related to a relationship. So whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it's a parent, whether it's their desire for a spouse and their inability to have one, their desire for a child, inability to have one, whether it's an employer or an employee or a colleague, for the vast majority of us, our peace is taken away by these relationships, or at least in our mind we've convinced ourselves it is. So you hear very frequently in the, the spiritual world situations, and most of us go through it, where we meditate, we pray, you have a yoga practice, and you get yourself into a situation where you feel very peaceful, very calm, very full of love. You've connected to that source of love. And then your colleague or friend or employer or employee or parent or spouse or whoever it is says something or does something. And the reaction is, I was in such peace until you came along. I'm very peaceful. You are the problem. Or, in prevention of this, you hear, just please, don't come near me right now. I'm feeling very peaceful, very happy, very calm. Just, just please, stay, stay away. Now, obviously this is not ideal. No one should have the power to steal our peace. But today I actually want to take this and go in a different way. So rather than, it's not about stealing our peace, it's about how can we turn our relationships actually into paths, avenues that bring us closer to peace closer to joy, closer to consciousness, closer to love. So we're going to talk about three different types of relationships. The first is the relationship we have with ourselves, Because that, of course, forms the foundation for all of our other relationships. 
The second is those we have with our family members, our colleagues, our neighbors, our community. And the third is the relationship we have with those we don't know. So the world, the earth, the people driving the cars and the traffic on the freeway, that world. But there's a few things that pertain to all of our relationships. So we're going to start with those. And these are the things that kill our relationships, that turn our, turn our relationships from being sources of joy and peace and love to being the stealer of those. And the first is, and we're not to blame for any of this. Actually, all of these phenomena are phenomena on how our brain works. It's not our fault. But knowing this, then we know how to address them. So the first is that our brain is wired. We are chemically, biologically, neurologically wired to newness. It's how our brains work. If you show a picture of a face to a subject, even a young child, the brain, and then as they're looking at the face, you're monitoring their brain waves. What happens is, for the first few moments of looking at the picture, the brain is very, very active. But the longer they look at the picture, the quieter the brain becomes. Until finally the brain is no longer responding to this picture at all. Now, the reason that this becomes a problem in our relationships is in the beginning, they're new. They're exciting. They're passionate. We're falling in love. We're learning about each other. It's exciting. 20 years down the line, almost anything that happens, anyone you meet, any possibility of anything, some new show, a text message, an email, is more important and more interesting and more exciting than your family. So you're sitting, you're sitting at the table with your loved one and your phone beeps. Now, if I were to say to you, which is more important? Your spouse or your text message? Of course you'd say my spouse, my child, my parent. But in that moment, because you've been looking at the face of your spouse for years, and this text message is brand new. All of your attention diverts. And the reason that this becomes a problem is we start taking for granted the good stuff. The bad stuff is new every time. The way that people annoy us, hurt us, bother us, every time it's new. But the good stuff, we've stopped responding to. And so this is where what you see in relationships that have gone on for such a long time, what you tend to get is just nagging. Oh, he's this, oh, she's that. Because the good stuff, we've become almost immune to it. So this is, this is one 
major dilemma. And it doesn't even matter who the relationship is with. And there's a very simple solution to it, which is simply to tune your brain. And it's just a habit. To tune your brain into newness. So for example, every day you're separate due to work, due to school, due to whether it's a few hours, whether it's from morning till night. But at the end of the day, when you come back together, before you come back, just tune your brain into the idea that you're about to see someone whom you haven't seen for a long time. And when you meet for the first few minutes, allow the meeting to be new. And when you're sitting together, allow your eyes to really see each other because we stop seeing each other. It's interesting, you'll see someone maybe who you haven't seen in a long time and they'll say to you, God, your daughter's become so beautiful, fat, thin, pale, what, whatever they tell us about. Your husband, your wife has become so old, young, fat, thin, whatever it may be. We haven't noticed. And we excuse ourselves because we say, oh, we see them every day. But it's actually not so much that we see them every day as that we've actually stopped looking. That newness has, we've become so immune to it. It's worn off and we actually stop looking. Now our eyes are open, but we're not paying any attention. Which, going back to the brain for a moment, miraculously actually is something we can do. If you've ever gotten in your car and driven yourself from the office to home or home to the office while you're thinking about something else and you don't even remember getting there, but the brain on autopilot has been able to do that because you've done it so many times. Now, if you're driving in a new city, rented a car, you've gone to Europe, you've gone to America, you've only got an address, or even you've got the GPS. Nonetheless, you have to pay a lot of attention. You're present, you're there. But the stuff we do every day, we do it on autopilot including looking at our loved one. So just bring the awareness back in and allow the good things to become new also. The second thing that we do is what's called confabulation. Now confabulation literally means a lie that is told honestly. Meaning, I don't mean to lie. I really believe what I'm telling you, but it's a lie. And this is the other thing that we do in our relationships, and we do it because our brain, again, I'm a neurologist by academic history, so I love, I love where science and spirituality overlap. Because we all, we know the spirituality. 
But a lot of us, we don't do it, we don't necessarily believe in it, or if we do believe it, we don't actually follow it. Because we think, yeah, 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 that's just, that's religion, that's spirituality, I do that on one day a week, or I do that on the holidays, or my grandmother does that for the family, or however it is. Or we relegate it just to ritual without actually implementing it in our lives. And what I love about where science and spirituality overlap is, A, it doesn't matter what your religion is, but B, science is now coming in and giving us the same information that sages and saints and rishis and prophets have been giving us for thousands of years. But for most of us, when science says it and gives us the reason for it, it's easier to digest in some way. It's easier then to say, oh, I should do this. So our brains, again, are wired to tell stories. If something happens that's new, that's different, we need to give ourselves a story about it. We don't like uncertainty. And so we will make up stories if we don't have one. Let's say you're walking out of here, you're going down to dinner, and you smile at someone. You don't know them. You're waiting for the golf cart to come. There's somebody else standing there. And you say namaste. And the person just says, <coughs> or you know, gives you this, this not very nice look, or ignores you completely. Well, that's, it's new, it's unexpected, it's also slightly painful. Not massively painful, we're not gonna go and need therapy because of it, but it's, it's a little, it stings a little bit. You've smiled at somebody, you've reached out to them and they have ignored you. Our brain is going to give us a story about that. We need that, that's, it's, it's what we do. Even if the story is just something as simple as, oh my God, that person is so rude. Oh my God, that person has such an ego. Don't they have any manners? Even something as simple as that, nonetheless, we need to give ourselves some story. You're driving down the freeway, somebody cuts you off. What do we say? Don't they have a brain? They're not paying attention, they're not thinking. Well, that's, that's a story. The story just as easily, of course, could have been that they just got a phone call from the hospital, that their child was in an accident, has three minutes left to live, and if they don't get to the hospital in the next three minutes, they're not gonna see their child alive. Both are actually equally possible. But we give ourselves a story, whether we are compassionate people and so we're gonna tell ourselves the second story. Or we just say, oh my God, the guy must not be paying attention, must be an idiot, must think he's the center of the universe, whatever it is. This is our nature. Now, the place that it hurts our relationships is we do the same thing in our relationships. So end of the day, come together for dinner. 
I've made you some nice dinner, or I've brought in some nice dinner. You are not interested. You're not eating very much. You don't speak very nicely to me. I say to you, what's wrong? Is it something I've done? Are you angry at me? You say, don't worry, it's not you. But you don't want to talk about it. I then go into the next room and burst into tears because in my mind it must be about me. And I'll probably even make up a story about it. Maybe we were going to go somewhere. We were going to go out to a party or something. You say, I don't feel like going. To me, it's, I must look horrible. I must be ugly. He must be ashamed of me. He doesn't want to take me to this party. There's something wrong. He doesn't want to be with me tonight. Is there another woman? Is there something going on? We're going to write a story. And the problem with this is that it's creative writing. It works very nicely in fiction classes, but very badly in life. And this is why it's so important not to do this, but we do it out of a habit. Someone comes in, they speak harshly to us. God, you're always so mean. You never pay any attention. You always treat me like this. Again, we've given it a story. We have no idea what he's coming from, what she's coming from, what has just happened to them what phone call they got, what email they got, what happened at the office. But we write a story. We make assumptions. And this is the, the tragedy. Because this is where we start to grow farther and farther apart without actually understanding each other. And the third thing that happens is There's two ways that we can live in our mind. The conscious mind or the unconscious mind. And subconscious goes into the unconscious. But for this purpose, we're going to make it very, very simple. We're going to call it conscious mind and unconscious, including subconscious. Now, all of that which we want in life, joy, peace, love, fulfillment, meaning, can only be experienced in the present moment. You cannot be happy tomorrow. You cannot be peaceful next week. You must experience it. literally in this breath, in this moment. It is your only chance for happiness and peace. If you have it in this moment, you'll take it into the next moment. The only way to be happy next week is to begin now and to carry that into next week. But 
only when we are living in our conscious mind are we able to experience any of the things that we actually are looking for in life. The problem is, most of us live most of our life in our subconscious, unconscious mind. The fact that we're able to get home on autopilot, the fact that we've stopped looking at our loved ones, this is because we are living not in the conscious mind. And the reason that we're not living in the conscious mind is there's too much for the conscious mind to be doing. Studies have shown, studies coming out of top research institutions have shown that the average person at any given moment has 150 unfulfilled, undone items on there to-do list, whether it's a written to-do list, whether it's a mental to-do list. But the average person at any given time has 150 tasks that are not done. We spend between 50 and 80% of our waking mental energy somewhere thinking about those 150 things. Whether it's something as simple and immediate as I have to call so-and-so back, or I have to remember to stop and buy a bottle of water before I go for the walk, or whether it's something longer term. Have to get in shape, have to start meditating, have to find the application for my child for the college. But this is where 50 to 80% of our mental energy goes. So if my conscious mind is working its way through 150 undone tasks, I have none of it to be here in this moment. Which means that this moment is relegated to the subconscious and unconscious. And since I can only be happy and joyful and peaceful in my conscious mind, I've given myself a tiny percentage of time for that to be possible. And this is also what happens in marriages. In the beginning when we fall in love, our conscious mind is there. We're fully present. That is our life. Which is why we're able to experience all of that joy, all of that love. But then what happens is you've got mortgages to pay off, you've got lunches to make, you've got homework that needs to be helped with, you've got work. You've got all of the nitty-gritty, mundane stuff of daily life that our brain now needs to work its way through. If my brain is working its way through that, I'm not here with you in my consciousness. Therefore, my subconscious has taken over our relationship. And what is my subconscious mind? It's the programming that I got when I was a child. It's the programming I got by my culture, which is why people say things like, oh my God, you're just like your mother. Oh my God, you're just like your father. If your mother or father was not the ideal of patience and love and understanding, if, if they want to hurt you, if they're angry at you, 
and your mother or father was a troublesome person, they will say, you're just like them. Now, we don't see ourselves just like that. Because when we're looking at ourselves, we're looking with our conscious mind. And when I'm conscious, I'm compassionate, I'm kind, I'm patient. But when my conscious mind is on these 150 things, and my subconscious has taken over my relationship, I'm playing out the same programming I got when I was a kid. I'm playing out all of my own issues, fears. So this is where, regardless of what I'm playing out in my subconscious, whether it's my parents, whether it's culture, whether it's my own anxiety, my own issues, this is what's going on. And this is where we find ourselves halfway through an argument. And we cannot even remember what it was about. Someone actually stopped you halfway through and said, what exactly are you people fighting over? We have no idea. Because we went into this subconsciously. And here's what I mean. If I say to you right now, you've got 30 seconds to get yourself very angry. Internally, okay? On the count of three, in 30 seconds, I want you to get as angry as you possibly can, okay? One, two, three, go. Okay. Can anybody do it? No, right? Why? Because. It's not that we couldn't think of things to be angry about. I mean, if I went around the room, you'd all give me, I'm sure you all could think of something that made you angry. But we can't actually generate rage. We cannot generate fury. And the reason is, it only takes over us when we are unconscious. You cannot consciously become furious. You can bring anger if you need to properly scold a child, an employee, somebody, you can certainly get yourself stern. You can get it so that they understand you're serious. But you're in control. You've just brought that emotion to impress upon them how important it is. That's very different from getting angry when we lose ourselves. So that only can happen if I'm unconscious, which means if my conscious mind is there, I'm not having anger. So the way to avoid this, this is when we talk about you know, a honeymoon effect. Well, on the honeymoon, we're fully present. There's no work to deal with. There's no mortgage to deal with. There's no you know, problematic neighbors. There's no children yet. There's no this. There's no that. It's just you and me, our biggest decision that we have to make is you know, which buffet we're gonna eat dinner from, whether we're gonna walk on the beach first and then have tea or tea first, then walk on the beach. These are the, the challenges we have. So we're present, we're fully there. 
our conscious minds are fully there, we're able to experience the joy and the peace and the love and the connection. But now when we go back, and A, the novelty is no longer there, my brain has become used to you, so my brain is bored, and I've got 150 undone tasks to think about, I'm operating on autopilot with you. And on autopilot, this is where we get into these patterns. You say this, you say that, and we do the same thing over and over again. We basically just keep having the same fights over and over again, right? Anybody know this? I mean, are, you, are you actually still having new fights today? It's the same stuff. A new situation, a new example. But it's the same stuff over and over. This is the autopilot. This is our subconscious. So the, the key to that, the solution then, of course, is to stay conscious. To keep bringing the conscious mind back into the present moment. This is where our practice of meditation is so helpful because what we learn in seated meditation about bringing the mind back We may do it only for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day. But that practice stays with us for the rest of the day. And we're able to remember to keep bringing our conscious mind back, back to the moment. Because when my conscious mind is here, then I'm able to actually experience joy. Otherwise, there was a great great comic image that went around a couple weeks ago that I got by email. It was a picture of a man and a woman and they were in the midst of this embrace. And each of them around the back of the other one was checking their mobile phones. So they're hugging each other. One hand is on the back of the other and the other hand they've each got their mobile and they're you know, seeing something on their mobile as they're hugging. So my body is hugging you, but I'm not there. I'm not able to get any of the emotional, psychological, neurological, spiritual benefits of that that beautiful moment of connection. I'm not connecting with you. I'm somewhere else. So bring it back. I want to take a couple minutes and just go specifically into these three different relationships because the the problems tend to be slightly different and so I want to give just a couple of quick thoughts on relationship with ourselves and with others and with the world. These that I've given already pertain to all of them, of course. Whether it's with ourselves, whether it's with our spouses, it's the same sense of not being present. It's the same sense. We tell stories about ourselves all the time. Anybody ever make a mistake and hear the voice in their head say, you're so stupid, you're nothing, you're never going to be anything, you're worthless? Well, that's a story. You have one piece of information, a mistake that you just made, and we write a story. Or a story 
that's more protective of the self, again, you make a mistake. But the story goes, it's all this person's fault. My favorite example of this is a woman I know who was talking about how she spilled a cup of coffee on herself and immediately was furious at her husband. He wasn't even in the room. Why? Because he had come home late last night. Therefore, she hadn't gotten enough sleep. Therefore, she was tired in the morning. Therefore, she felt the need to make herself a cup of coffee. If she had had a good night's sleep, she wouldn't have been tired in the morning. She wouldn't have needed to have a cup of coffee. Therefore, there would have been no question of the coffee spilling on her shirt. So even we are alone in the room, we've made the mistake by spilling the cup of coffee. Nonetheless, we give these stories. So one story would be you are so clumsy. You're stupid, you're this, or oh my God, maybe I'm getting Parkinson's. Right? I mean, you could tell any number of stories. This is the first thing I remember. I read online somewhere that that guy it began also by spilling his coffee. Or it's my husband. Everything's his fault. He came home late. So we make up these stories again with ourselves just as much as we do with others. But going specifically into the relationship with ourselves, the most important thing, the most important thing is truth. We lie to ourselves just as much, if not more, than we lie to others. And what that lying to ourselves does is it keeps us stuck. So again, like we make up these stories, you're worthless, you're clumsy, you're stupid. Well, that's a lie. Not only is it a lie on the most superficial level of the fact that this is the first cup of coffee I've ever spilled, or maybe the fifth, but in 46 years to spill five cups of coffee, you certainly cannot qualify someone as clumsy if five out of the who knows how many tens of thousands of cups of coffee someone has drank get spilled. But it's, it's a lie on a deeper level and a much, much more damaging level, which is every story we tell ourselves about what we say, what we do, what we look like, is a story that is telling us you are these actions. You are your body. You are your career. You are this relationship. And that's, that's the fundamental lie. Because that's just, that's the body. That's just this identity. I mean, for me, if I say to you, if you say, who are you? And I say, oh, well, I'm Sadhvi Bhagavati Saraswati, and I'm 46, and I'm female, and I'm... American and I'm a sannyasi and I am, you know, I, I have hay fever and I love karela and I, I mean, I could give you all of these things about myself. I would think I was telling you about myself. They're true. I haven't told you any 
lies yet, but the foundation is a lie, because that's not actually who I am. And it's fine for social gatherings, it's fine for a party or, you know, coffee shop gathering where someone says, nice to meet you, I'm so-and-so, who are you? But when we tell that story to ourselves, then the problem becomes when instead of being 46, I start to get to what my mind says is old, then my story becomes I'm old. My story, if, if instead of looking in the mirror and saying, thank you, God, for another day and eyes that see, I look in the mirror and I say, oh, my God, another wrinkle. Oh, my God, another gray hair. Oh, my God, you're so ugly. Oh, you, you really, you know, I know you said you'd never have cosmetic surgery, but my God, now look at yourself. You really should. It's disservice to the people around you. You know, we, we give ourselves all this nonsense. I come from LA and every time I go back, you drive through the streets of LA and you see signs for things titled age reversal clinics, age defying clinics. Well, we of course know that's not true. Every one of us is getting older by a day every day. I mean, has anybody ever had a birthday that was a year earlier? I mean, is, is there any possibility I'm going to celebrate my 45th birthday next year? Doesn't matter how much I pay at what clinic, at what spa, at what beauty salon. There is no one who can give me a 45th birthday next year. No matter what color my hair is, no matter how much you pull and push my skin, it's going to be 47 next year, and it's going to be 48 the year after that. But what's happened with our culture is that age has become synonymous with somehow a failure on our part. Wrinkles are a failure. Gray hair is a failure. This is much more so in the West than in India. Thankfully, but tragically, it's now coming into Indian culture. Traditional Indian culture was to worship, to worship, to revere the elderly. Gray hair meant wisdom. These were the people, we bow at their feet. We touch the feet of the elders because they are the storehouses of blessings, of grace, of wisdom. But now, in this Western culture that's so tragically now brainwashing so many of us here in India, it's all about how can you look young. Now, there's nothing wrong with black hair or brown hair or blonde hair, as long as we're aware of the fact that it's purely an aesthetic decision. I prefer black to gray. I prefer brown to gray. Fine, prefer any color you want, no problem. But it's not because I have somehow failed if I've got a head full of gray hair, that I've somehow let myself down, I've let myself go. This is what people say, right? You've let yourself go. Your hair's gray, you've let yourself go. More wrinkles on your face that you haven't 
injected with something yet. You've let yourself go. And the reason that this is so tragic with ourselves is the message we're giving ourselves over and over again is you are your body. You are old. And you are old now with a negative connotation. Your, your, your worth is decreasing year by year. Each gray hair is decreasing your worth. Each wrinkle is decreasing your worth. That our worth is so inextricably linked to what we look like. Which is the lie that we tell ourselves that you are your body. But of course, we could say the same thing about our careers. We could say the same thing about our bank accounts. You are how much money you make. You are how big your house is. You are how many Mercedes you have. All of this stuff we tell ourselves. Now again, there's nothing wrong with big houses. Big houses are beautiful, sure. If you prefer a Mercedes to a Honda, by all means, have a Mercedes. Nothing wrong with it. But have it with the awareness that it's not you. Have it with the awareness that if the stock market crashes and you go from a mansion to a condo or you go from a Mercedes to a Honda or for God's sakes from a, you know, from a Mercedes to a, you know, a, a rickshaw or a, a bicycle that you still exist. That nothing has changed about you. The stock market crashed, that's what happens, it does that. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, that's what the stock market does. Like waves on the ocean, they go up, they go down. Our physical form is degenerating. That's what matter does. Whether it's this sari, whether it's this pillow, whether it's this body. Come back a hundred years from now, none of it is gonna look nearly as good as it does today. Matter degenerates. It degenerates at scientific rates. Our body is gonna degenerate faster, sadly, than the pillow will, at a different rate. But this is what matter does. And this is where we need to really come back to ourselves with the truth of, okay, fine, no problem. I prefer black hair to gray. I prefer mansions to shacks. I prefer Mercedes to bicycles. Fine, great, have them. Enjoy them, love them. But do not think they are you. And if for any reason the day comes when it's gray instead of black, or a shack instead of a mansion, or a bicycle instead of a Mercedes, that you have lost the money, yes, the hair dye, yes, the car, yes, but not the self along with it. That the self doesn't go out with these things. And that's the most important truth to keep telling ourselves. Who am I? Who's the eye whose hair it is? Who's the eye who drives the car? Who's the eye who prefers this to that? And then you can even go a step deeper. Because of course the higher eye, the real eye, has no preference 
for a Mercedes over a bicycle. The higher eye, the, the divine supreme eye, has no preference for mansions over shacks. That's what we would call our, our small eye, our individual self, fine. So that eye, but then you go a step deeper. Who's the eye aware of this small eye? Who's the one watching my ego? Who's the one able to say, ah, that's just ego? Ah, that's ignorance. Ah, that's what I learned from my fifth grade teacher. Ah, that's what I picked up in these TV commercials. And you can actually keep going deeper and deeper until you really connect with the truth of who we are, which is consciousness, which is love, which is spirit, which is soul. Whatever word you use for it, it doesn't matter. It's the same. So that's the most important with your relationship to yourself. The most important with your relationship to others is we've already spoken about three aspects of it. The most important is stay conscious, stay present, and take care of your heart, your own heart, as much as you take care of your furniture or your clothes. What I mean by that is, let's say that you had a friend come over. And that friend sat down on your couch. And you went into the kitchen to make that friend a fresh cup of tea. And you made it with a lot of love. And you put elachi in there. And you put ginger in there. And you, you made it with your own hands with lots of love. And you gave that friend the cup of tea. And that friend proceeded to spill the cup of tea all over your couch purposely, accidentally, knowingly, unknowingly, it doesn't matter. Person spills the tea. Now, what's the first thing you're going to do? What are you going to do? Hmm? I'm sorry? Yeah, exactly. You're going to put it right. How are you going to put it right? Wipe the couch. Exactly. First thing you're going to do, wipe the couch. You're going to understand that the longer I let this tea stain sit in my couch, the more dog porjaya, the more it's going to stain. You're going to go, you're going to get a towel, maybe you'll get some soap. You're going to clean that tea. Doesn't matter whether you think your friend did it on purpose, not on purpose. There's no condition under which the friend might have done it that would prevent you from wanting to clean it up immediately. Imagine that after spilling the cup of tea, the friend then stood up and walked out of your house. You're still going to clean it up right away. Is anyone here going to walk out of your house and yell at the friend, wait, wait, you've got to come back and clean up what you spilled. How dare you? Come get back here. Clean up your mess. 
Anybody going to leave the stain on the couch so that next time the friend comes over, they remember what they did to your couch? So that you can say, look here, see? See what you did? Of course not. Whether they spill it on your couch, whether they spill it on your shirt, whether they do it purposely, non-purposely, whether you've told them a hundred times to be careful with the cup of tea or not, the first thing you're going to do is clean it up. But with our hearts, when someone does something that stains our hearts, that hurts our hearts, the, the metaphoric dumping the tea on our hearts, what do we do? We run after and yell at them, clean up your mess. You hurt me. Get back here and fix it. Or we hold on to it. I don't want you to forget. Every time I meet you, you need to see that you've done this to my heart. See this stain that you did that. If we care so much about our couches or our shirts, shouldn't we care so much about our hearts? Why do we allow the stains that other people have done to keep sitting on our heart, to work themselves into these permanent stains on our heart? They then attract all kinds of bugs. It starts to smell. Now we don't even want to sit on our couch. We don't want to go near our heart. We close off our heart. This is where we harden our hearts. Why, why do our hearts become hard? Because they've been stained. We didn't clean the stain. And now that stain has started to stink. The anger, the pain, the grudge, the resentment that we're holding on to has started to stink. And it's in our heart. And so we're the one who's having to keep breathing its fumes. But we still don't want to clean it because that person should know that what they did was wrong. But we can't live here in this stinky situation all the time, feeling this pain all the time, feeling this betrayal all the time. So what do we do? We build a box around our couch. We board up the room. Maybe the whole living room now has to go. Board it up and stay away. And that's what we do from our hearts. So when anyone hurts you, your first reaction should be to wipe it off your heart. Clean your heart. Breathe it out. Don't make up a big story. See what the emotion you're feeling in. Because of course, if someone spills red wine on your couch, or if they spill tea, or if they spill coffee, or if it's blood, there's actually different ways to remove those different stains. Those of us who don't know that much about housekeeping would go for soap and water for all of them. But actually, people who do know could tell you, ah, 
For blood, you use this. For tea, you use that. For coffee, you use that. For red wine, you, you would use this. So it's important to look at it for a moment. What is it I'm feeling? Is it anger? Is it betrayal? Is it judgment? Is it jealousy? Is it worth, worthlessness? What, are, what exactly am I feeling? What exactly does this, is this stain made of? And name it. Ah, jealousy. Wow, that hurt. Worthlessness. Wow, yeah, I mean, someone says something to us, does something to us, ignores us. Hits us. Before the anger. The anger is what happens after. The first is the pain. What did that make me feel? It made me feel unworthy. It made me feel jealous. It made me feel small. Well, we respond to that in different ways. And one of the ways is we go on the offense, which becomes anger. I'll show you. But that's a response to the pain that I have. So we're honest with what we're feeling. Is it despair? Is it hopelessness? Is it fear? Name it. Name it as, as clearly as you can. This is introspection. This is self-knowledge. And then, clean it. Give it to God. Breathe it out. Fill it back with love. Do whatever you need to do to heal that. Whether it's a hot bath, whether it's a walk in nature, whether it's a hug from someone you love, whether it's listening to something spiritual, going someplace spiritual, whatever it may be. Listening to music, playing music, making art, getting a massage. Doesn't matter what it is. But by this stage of our lives, most of us know what it is that we can do that, that heals our hearts and heal it. Don't let that stain stay there forever. And the last, when we think about the world, the people we don't even know. So these are not people who are able to put permanent stains on us. Somebody cuts you off on the freeway. It's an immediate thing. You may think, my God, idiot, horrible guy, what is it? Or you may come up with a compassionate story. But in either case, it's not going to stay with you. You're not going to not be able to eat dinner because this guy cuts you off in the morning. It's gone, like a lion in the water. But how do we have conscious and authentic and spiritual relationships with people we don't know? The key to this is to remember that the world is a family. To remember that that same divine that flows through me flows through everyone. And when I remember that, when I remember that the soul, the soul is divine, 
Yeah, we've all got different bodies, therefore we've got different stories, therefore we've made different mistakes, therefore we have different personalities. You're not going to marry everybody, become best friends with everybody. But when we remember that the soul is divine, what that does is it connects us to people all over the world. It connects us to our sisters and brothers of every color, of every culture, of every country. It makes their pain our pain, their hunger our hunger, which means that we become connected to and therefore we act for our sisters and brothers who are in need, whether it's hunger, whether it's education issues, whether it's whatever it is that, that we do, we no longer live our lives as though we lived in a box. When the same spirit that flows through me flows through you, flows through you, and flows through all seven billion people on the planet, well then I'm no more entitled to a hot meal than they are. If the same divine who I believe lives in me, lives in them. I'm no more entitled to an education or health care than they are. I'm very grateful that I have these things. I remember to say thank you a lot to God, to the universe, to my parents, to my guru. But there's no sense of entitlement. Because if the divine is in them, then what are they not deserving? Khalil Gibran says it very beautifully in one of his poems. He said, surely those who are worthy of their days and their nights, surely those who are worthy of their days and their nights, those who are still alive, those who the universe has not yet sucked back up. Surely, if the universe deems them worthy of their days and their nights, they're worthy of all else from you. And it reminds us that that divine is in them. And again, it doesn't mean we marry everyone, it doesn't mean we take them all under our roof, but it means that we live our lives with a sense of connection and therefore compassion. And we make choices that are in alignment with things like protection of our planet, mitigation of climate change. We understand that that which we do, what we eat, what we buy, how we live, that all of these things have an impact, have a trickle-down effect a ripple effect on the planet. And again, there's no, there's no objective moral do's or don'ts or goods or bads. That's something that each one of us has to figure out for ourselves. But we figure it out not thinking that I live in a vacuum, not thinking that I am just this body and therefore it's just about how much pleasure can I give it. But it's about who am I in connection to this universe? And what you find is that when you start living like that, 
not only are you more compassionate for those who are hungry and homeless or sick, not only are you more concerned about our rainforests and our water and our air and land, <coughs> excuse me, but you're more compassionate and more patient for the drivers on the freeway. Just when I was driving here today, the street of Rishikesh is very small. You easily can fit one car in each direction, but barely. We were on our side going nicely along when suddenly it came to us, just dead stop. Nothing was moving. There were about six cars in front of us, nothing moving. And when I looked out my window, I could see facing me in our lane was a big bus. Now, what a big bus was doing in our lane, coming in this direction, the opposite direction, what he was thinking, who knows? Was he trying to pass somebody and there hadn't been room? I have no idea what was going on in the bus driver's mind. But traffic came to an absolute standstill for about 20 minutes because it's a tiny road, there's nowhere to maneuver. So our driver got out to see whether he could work something out. And you could hear people up ahead screaming and shouting. And of course, you don't need a very vivid imagination to understand what they must have been shouting at this bus driver. Now, granted, it was not a wise decision. If I were his, you know, driving school teacher, I would have failed him on his driving exam to get a license. No, you're not allowed to drive on the opposite side of the road and hold up traffic. But when we live with this concept of oneness and compassion, well, the first step becomes I start to write different stories. So the first story is just he's an idiot, thinking only about himself, trying to get ahead. So first we start to write a more compassionate story. Maybe a child ran into the road. A dog ran into the road. And he was trying to not hit the child and had no option because it's Ganga on the other side. He had no option but to come onto our side of the road. So we start with compassion, but then it goes even deeper, which is I don't even need the story. If I'm able to simply tune into his soul, my soul to his soul, that is another soul in a different human body, having a completely different human experience, probably one that's not very much fun right now, with everybody shouting at him. My frustration dissipates immediately. Immediately, patience floods the car. Compassion floods the car. And if we're able to really live with that, then not only does it benefit us in our global interactions and benefit the world, but it ends up benefiting us, of course, also in our personal interactions.